0: Are we recording?
1: Southwest Side. North Side. Homicide. Murderland. Murderland. Murderlandian. Murderlandian. Murder, Murder- casters.
0: <laughs> Murderland fam.
1: Chicago. Death Squad. <laughs> Squad, Chicago homiciders, gang, Chica- <laughs> Chicago murder slaughterers, liquidators, <laughs> Kill executioners, my killers, killers, get out, shy kills, shy kills, Chicago kills. Yes, mm. kills me. We killed it. From stress. We killed it. In Chicago. Chicago traffic is slowly killing me. What's a word? Windy, windy city murder people. <laughs> <laughs> deep dish murder. Uh, you know We're serving up a hot, hot plate of deep dish Chicago murder. No stewed tomatoes on that bitch. Oh, but you got to. Let's do it. Don't they? is that, that how they make it? they they crush the tomatoes and they put yeah you know. they do. I, it I, makes don't, I don't like the I don't seeds. like it. It makes so watery. It's,
0: you, it's a thing. You're not supposed to put it in your hand and eat it. You're supposed to use a fork. I do.
1: Now I'm hungry. Cool. All right.
0: All right. All right. All let's right. do we our yeah. We can't do we don't our have, intro. We don't have a tag.
1: We're working on it, people. Thanks for joining us today on the Chicago Murderland Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Northside Katie. And I'm Southwestside Jen.
0: We chill and thrill you with tales of murder in the windy city of Chicago and Chicago's Outer Limits. Yes, folks, it will be creepy, disturbing, gritty, sometimes gory, and always interesting. Always.
1: Chicago is a city of neighborhoods and immigrants of great wealth and bitter poverty. Chicago is also a city of industry, transportation, architecture, culture, and high finance. And you know what else? Deep dish pizza too, which strangely is not one of our faves. Get out. (laughs) Just get it away from me. Just too much cheese. (laughs) Both of us are lifelong or almost lifelong Chicagoans. And between the two of us, we want to share our amazing city with you. Of course, that means Chicago's murderous and dark side. We
0: all know about killers like John Wayne Gacy and Richard Speck. But we want to tell you the fascinating and tragic stories of murder in Chicago that aren't as well known. You'll get to know the murder victims and the neighborhoods where they lived and where they were murdered. We walked the streets and sidewalks, the victims and their killers walked. The city we love. The city of big shoulders. This is... Papa trabajaba cuando vivía en Chicago Siempre policía al fuego Siempre al lado de la ley Chicago Murderland Una noche de verano en la tierra del dólar fue lo que todo Chicago vio
1: Dejen me explicarles que cuando el señor Capone de la ciudad bañó
0: So now
2: if you're quite ready let us begin
1: we are here to be storytellers, not experts. And even though one of us is a mental health professional, and the other one is nuts, that's a clinical term. We are just expressing our own opinions on this podcast. It may not be suitable for younger or more sensitive listeners. We got some swears. A lot.
0: Chicago's the city of neighborhoods, and this episode features Edgewater and presents the tale of Susie Degnan, whose life was cut short by an unknown killer. As we talk about the Edgewater neighborhood, we'll get to know little Susie and take a peek into her life because she mattered, was loved, and is missed in the world.
2: Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose, Yuletide carol It was the winter of somebody-
1: 1946, and the Degnan family was peacefully sleeping, snuggled warmly in their beds in their upscale neighborhood of Edgewater. The Christmas and New Year's holiday break had come to an end for sisters Betty and Susie Degnan. The girls concluded their Sunday evening thinking about their Monday morning breakfast of Malto meal and returning to Sacred Heart Academy for the new school term. But as dawn broke on the cold and snowy Chicago winter morning of January 7th, a horrifying discovery was made. Only little Betty would wake up. Her little sister Susie's bed was inexplicably empty. The Degnan family, the Edgewater neighborhood, and the whole of Chicago would never be the same.
2: I would like to go back to 1946 and not have that happen. That would have been nice hope for us. Betty was 10 years old when her family moved to Chicago in the summer of 1945. At the time, the city was home to the largest stockyards in the nation. And her father, Jim Degnan, was an administrator with the wartime meat regulation board. The Degdons rented an apartment in the north side Edgewater Beach neighborhood, near Lake Michigan. Betty's little sister, Suzanne, was six. She was very bubbly, just always doing something. She never sat still. January 7th, 1946. It was back to school after the Christmas holiday for the Degdon girls. My mother would wake us up, and she went into my room, woke me up, and then went to Suzanne's room. I could hear my mother scream. The six-year-old was missing.
0: This is Episode 1. Where's little Susie?
2: But even while his anguished message was being radioed, Police were combing the neighborhood for traces of the crime and its perpetrator. The six-year-old was missing. Police were called to the family's first floor apartment. They surmised someone had entered and left through Suzanne's window, which had been found standing wide open. (laughs)
0: After years of sacrifice and deprivation, the nation looked toward the promise of happier days and the anticipation of abundance and joy that the Christmas season seemed to assure. But joy would quickly turn to dread as the holiday season was beginning to button itself up in the Edgewater neighborhood of Chicago. Edgewater? originally considered an elite 19th-century suburb, wasn't recognized as a distinct neighborhood when scholars laid out the community maps in the 1920s and was merged into the uptown neighborhood. It wasn't until the 1970s that property owners in Edgewater convinced the city of Chicago to make a rare change in the community area maps and deemed Edgewater as a neighborhood onto itself. The Edgewater neighborhood was scarcely populated before the late 19th century with mostly German and Irish residents. It was John Lewis Cochran, 1857-1923, to 1923, who bought land in the town of Lakeview in 1886. He built mansions on the lakefront for wealthier families and smaller houses west of the lake. He added sidewalks and sewers, which will become a larger part of this story, and streetlights. He started a lighting company in Edgewater and played a pivotal role in the creation of the Northwestern Elevated Railroad Company, which opened up a connection to neighborhoods farther north. With so many new options for transportation and people moving into the Edgewater neighborhood, apartment buildings were needed, something Mr. Cochran had not intended. He had a string of common corridor buildings and residential hotels built between two specific blocks, Winthrop and Kenmore Avenues, which increased Edgewater's population and again will become pivotal in our story. In the winter, Bing Crosby was seeing the promise of coming home for a white Christmas, and starring in the Bells of St. Mary on the big screens of palace theaters everywhere across America. Suzanne, Susie Degnan, was a darling blonde-haired little girl. Think of Shirley Temple, Cindy Brady, the little girl from that movie My Girl. Oh, yeah. I know her first name was Anna. Anna Chomsky. Thanks. Yeah, my daughter was really into that movie. Anyhow, think of that girl at that age. Our little girl, Susie, lived with her father Jim, her mother Helen, and her big sister Betty. Susie and her family lived in a two-story brick apartment building on Kenmore Avenue. They were a fairly traditional Irish Catholic family. Dad worked and mom stayed at home. The girls attended Sacred Heart Academy, just a short hop, skip, and a jump from their apartment, where they could easily catch glimpses of Lake Michigan on their walk to school. The Dagnan apartment would have still had their Christmas tree up and illuminated in the observation of Little Christmas, which in the Catholic faith is a date marked by the arrival of the three kings. One can imagine the holiday gifts the girls might have received. A Mickey Mouse watch with the arms that went round and round with a red leather band. How oh, cute. Right? Ideal honey baby doll with a cloth body and a crier mechanism and curly molded hair. Sweet, right? Totally sweet. Yeah, but a little creepy, that molded hair.
1: Well, you know.
0: A little bit. Maybe even an erector said if her parents were more open-minded about gender roles. Probably not. Doubtful. Yeah. Doubtful, yeah. The family would have had their milk delivered to the front door in bottles and have had their trash travel down a chute located at the back door that dropped down to a heavy wrought iron door, which opened about four feet off the ground out onto the alley for the easy depositing of garbage into the bins below by the building janitor. The alleys at that time of year would have been slick and extra icy because city plows didn't make frequent trips to clear them. Kind of like now. Right. <laughs> exactly. Like now. <laughs> True that. Back to you, Katie. Thank you. Being that there weren't nearly as many cars back then, they didn't really need to plow the alleys. In Edgewater, most people rode the elevated train, the L, or hopped on a Sheridan Road Express bus to get to and from downtown or another bus out to the suburbs for work. Every alley in Chicago, then and now, has periodic sewer drains installed in order to accommodate for the volume of rain and melting snow we get every year. On that cold and damp January winter evening, with snow and ice blanketing the ground, the sewer covers in the alley would have looked from a distance like big, black, polished, glistening eyes in a blanket of white, illuminated only by the bits of light coming through between the buildings from the streets. The alleys of Edgewater were not well lit in the winter of 1946. In the wee hours of the morning, a young man walked from the L station towards an apartment building where he had seen a ladder. The man picked up that ladder and carried it to the adjacent apartment building and placed it against a window, the window of Susie's room, and then climbed up to the window. It is also alleged that the same young man gagged the sleeping child with a handkerchief and carried her still sleeping body down the ladder. She must have
1: been so frightened and disoriented.
0: Susie awakened. According to this report, the man then laid her on the ground and strangled her with his hands. It's reported that he cut her body into pieces in an adjacent building basement bathtub and methodically threw them into sewers and alleys in Chicago. Yikes. Right? Yeah. Okay. Susie's head was dumped into a sewer. This is a horrible thought, but the first thing I thought of was it must have made a splash, because the water at the bottom of the sewer wouldn't have been frozen.
1: No. It was the the catch basin for that building. And... There's going to be water in the bottom, probably at least 10 feet down. Gross. And horrific. Yeah. I said horrific. Not horrific. You're not wrong. It was found,
0: her head, not long after, the police allegedly received a phone call tip from an anonymous caller that said, look into the sewers.
2: My Christmas song for you. All the old things tried and true, like jingle bells and chestnut dells, a valley white with snow. My Christmas song for you is all.
0: This sweet baby doll of a girl, playing with her toys just two days before, looking out the window at the snow falling with her big sister, maybe scratching out her name with her fingernail into the frosted glass on the inside of the window, listening to the sound of Chicago apartment radiator heat coming up through the pipes, tree lights flickering, the smell of roasting chicken wafting through the apartment. Maybe Susie is thinking about practicing her addition tables to prepare for school and the end of the holiday break. That night after dinner, the family sits in the living room. Perhaps they're listening to an old radio show. Finally, as Susie and Betty start to yawn, their daddy tucks them in while mom washes up the dishes in the kitchen.
2: Mm,
0: What an idyllic scene. Sometimes I forget that people who are murdered aren't just stories in a book, Jen, or in the newspaper. Susie's life was important. An unimaginable horror of her last hours, the family must have felt such anguish, and the aftermath of what happened to her is very important that we remember. Absolutely. According to Find a Grave, Susie's grave is unmarked, as are the graves of her mother and father. Her sister Betty is alive, and we hope living well in this world. On January 8, 1946, The Chicago Sun-Times announced in a three-inch high heading, "Find Child Slain. Beneath it was a grisly detail. Police discover head in sewer. The kidnapping earned significant publicity, and the police vowed to find whoever was responsible. It's reported that the police discovered a handwritten ransom note that the parents did not find in the apartment. Even though Susie's father pled for her return, there was nothing more from the kidnapper. Within days, someone called to report that they might want to look in the sewer. Look in the sewer. After the discovery of Susie's head, her legs were found, but not long after than her torso. The police made efforts to open many sewers and catch basins in and around Edgewater, but did not find dear Susie's arms. The funeral was held January 11th at St. Gertrude's Church. An estimated 1,300 were in attendance. It wasn't until the following month that sweet little Susie's severed two frozen arms were found in another sewer blocks away. Since they did not find her arms until several
1: weeks later, she was buried without them. I can't even imagine. At this point, I want to just think about Susie and that she's not just a little footnote in the story. She was a person. She lived a life. She was a daughter. She was a sister. She was a student at Sacred Heart Academy, which was just two blocks away from their beautiful home, overlooking Lake Michigan. She lived in this neighborhood that we know, that we love. I've been Inside Sacred Heart Academy, I walked its halls. We walked that sidewalk where her and Betty walked to school every morning. It's a beautiful neighborhood. And they had a really idyllic and happy life. My oldest sister would
0: have been maybe five or six years old, you know, years after she mm, had died. And wow. so that was a, a contemporary story. While I never really thought about Susie as a person, until we decided to feature her. I was always just scared of the sewers in the alleys. You know, it was used as a tactic to frighten us. But looking at those sewers now, today, in my 50s, I think, how dreadful, and how is it even possible that an individual could
1: lift them, handle them? I I know. And And of course, you know, we weren't, alive and sentient in 1947. So we don't know if what we have today around our city's infrastructure is all of the same, has all the same character and all of the same construction. But lifting the a, a sewer cover today, you're lifting about a hundred pounds of metal. I don't know if they were made that way in the in at that time. And that kind of goes to some of the questions that we, that I'm going to bring up in, in terms of the investigation and the fact that they did pin this on one person and could one person really have done this? Right. So lots of questions remain about this case, regardless of the fact that someone was convicted of this crime. So shall we talk about the investigation? Yes, please. The police initially had very little to go on. And all they had really was the crudely written ransom note, the open window, the ladder that was left out on the side of the property. What did the ransom note say? So the ransom note said, get $20,000 ready and wait for word. Do not notify FBI or police. Bills in fives and tens. On the back, it read, burn this for her safety. It was very crudely written. There were some misspellings. And there was, I think what they eventually said was some kind of grimy, maybe coal dust. Huh. That was actually on the paper. And I didn't know that the parents hadn't seen it. That it was found by the police. And apparently it was just crumpled up and on the floor. It wasn't left even in a prominent place where the abductor would have left it to make sure it was seen. So there's a lot of confusing things like this in this case. Um, moving on, as you said, the day of the abduction, Jim Degman actually went on WGN radio to beg the kidnappers for Susie's safe return, but they didn't, the Degmans really didn't receive any kind of follow-up information from the abductors as you would expect. And it was actually within 24 hours of the kidnapping I found out that poor little Susie's body was discovered. Good God. The family, obviously, in the affluent neighborhood of Edgewater were terrorized by this incident. Um, The search was intense. There was a silent news clip showing crowds around the Degnan house, search dogs being brought around the neighborhood, and all of those those big rubbish bins. There's there's men digging out all the rubbish, searching through these giant metal bins. A neighbor who actually lived in the building and lived in the apartment above the Degnans, she did um report that she had arrived home about 1250 AM. Okay. And she did hear a man downstairs talking and a dog barking at the same time. I don't know if the if it was the Degnan's dog or maybe one of the other people who lived in the building. So but other people did hear that dog barking as well. Did the did the Degnans have a dog? I don't know. Okay. Okay. We don't have that information. Um, so other neighbors did hear the dog barking around the same time. Strange little incident that happened that Sunday, and it probably is unrelated, but it was reported by some of the neighbors that a woman dressed in a man's coat was chasing some children around. After offering candy to them, so it's not really clear what her agenda was, one of the children was reportedly struck by her and was injured because she had long fingernails and the child was scratched in the face. Don't know if that's related to this at all. It's probably one of my relatives. Well, I wasn't going to say that, Katie, but
0: now you brought it up. Sorry. It's one of my crazy aunts. (laughs) What can I say? (laughs)
1: You did say you were nuts. I okay, mean, come on. Um, uh, there was a neighbor named George. He said he saw a man of about five foot nine inches and approximately 35 years old leaving the building with a bag around 1 a.m. The man wore a light brown fedora and a dark coat. That's all he could report about the man's appearance. A bag? A bag. Oh. Aye, aye, aye. A lady named Missy Crawford, who lived across the street from the Degnans, reports she saw a man driving up and down Kenmore repeatedly at about 2 in the morning. Again, kind of like, was that related? Was that not related? I don't know. I mean, he
0: should have gotten a ticket, because Kenmore's one way. How are you driving up and down?
1: Uh, maybe back then. You make an excellent point, Katie. Mm-hmm. There's crime Detective everywhere. Detective
0: Katie on the prowl, on the job.
1: <laughs> Giving out tickets. <laughs> the There was a cab driver who said he saw a woman behind the Dugnant house around one thirty eight. I mean, so there all these things, they don't even, some of these things don't even match except for the dog barking. That was the one consistent thing. So apparently this woman was carrying a bundle under each arm. She got into a car with a man with gray hair. Who what? knows? So
0: these these differ. These are all... One thirty in the morning behind the Degnan house. Yeah, so I just want to throw out there for our amazing little Chicago Myrtle and pod peoples that we went to the house.
1: Oh yeah, and we're gonna talk about it.
0: Yeah, and if you're thinking about that time and that there weren't any, well, the house isn't there anymore, but we went to the property. I just want to say that how is anybody seeing anything? behind the
1: house. Well, behind the house actually, okay, this is what I've been able to surmise from aerial photos of the house. Ooh, okay, so there was a backyard or I guess a side yard that faced north towards Glen Lake, which is actually quite a bit up the block cuz okay. the the house was at the Jen's pointing. But. I'm yeah, can't you see me everybody? Yes. See that? The house was located at the North east corner of Thorndale and Kenmore, right facing Kenmore, and with a garage off of the alley to the east, and then a, a beautiful side yard, which actually was where the open window was. So, the open window where Susie was taken from was actually facing north. So, the neighbor to the north might have seen this person. Wow. Jen, do we have any um, links
0: that we're going to provide to our listeners in our show notes on our Facebook page and so forth?
1: We're going to link like crazy. We're going to link the shit out of this episode. We are. We found so much great stuff. And the side of the Degnan home was open. The open window was located on the north side, um, directly across the alley. And you and I walked the alley and saw this beautiful place was the beautiful Colvin House, which is now... A historic place, and it's amazingly opulent, beautiful, beautifully designed, gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Anyway, so that was like what they would see every day. They walked past that house every day when they went to their uh, went to school. Um, so the side window was left open. The theory is that the abductor obviously went in the window, got Susie, brought out uh, Susie out of the window down the ladder. But the weird thing was, is that the ladder was moved. And you're ta- if you're talking about a single abductor, carrying a six-year-old child, possibly a child that was protesting, maybe struggling, maybe crying, um, and a ladder, like why were you carrying the ladder over to the side of the yard? Because the ladder was not found at the window, it was actually found in the side yard. That's peculiar. It's very peculiar. And that's not the only thing. Hmm. Weird. So Katie, you and I, as we said, we walked around the site of the former Degnan home and we saw how big the lot is and how it's easy to imagine the beautiful four-story apartment building that was there along with the large side yard and backyard and garage. And after looking at photos of the building, it's curious that the perpetrator got in and out of a window close into in close proximity to where Susie was sleeping and they were completely undetected mm-hmm. so and then one of the questions that hit me was did they know that that was Susie's bedroom was she targeted did this person have prior knowledge of the family had this person been in the home how did they know even that that was her bedroom window had they been in the house before did they live in the house? mm Who no. knows? I have a clarifying question for you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Pardon
0: me. Was it a four-story building or a two-story building with four
1: units? No, it was actually a four-story building. Really? hmm Okay. Yeah. It and this was a beautifully beautiful building that actually looked like a very large single family home. Right but it was an apartment building, a small apartment building. That The abductor knew that was a multifamily building. This was not a randomly chosen window. Right. I would agree with that. So it leads me to believe that this was planned, that Susie was targeted, and that this person scouted out the situation and knew exactly where to find Susie, as opposed to climbing in another window and landing in a completely different apartment.
0: That's certainly possible. And I just want to add that I just find it peculiar that there's a ladder out in the middle of the winter that's accessible to anybody for any reason. It's wintertime.
1: And I didn't find anything that would clarify whether they brought that ladder or whether it belonged to the Dugnan family. So we don't know whether it was there. Right. And why would a ladder be outside in the snow? Weird, Right. Weird, then the weird keeps coming. Okay, so now we're going to talk about that anonymous phone call. And we've got, I've seen actually that that, that there's not 100% verification that that was the case, that there was an anonymous phone call, suggesting that the police look at the storm sewers near the Duggan home. There Some reports in some of the newspapers said that they just started checking sewer basins or catch basins and sewers on a hunch. That's a hell of a hunch. Right. um, So now we move to the discovery of the murder room at 5901 to 5903 North Winthrop. About how far away or so
0: is that from Susie Degnan's apartment building? So it's a block away. One block.
1: Literally one block.
0: I knew that. You know how I knew that? How did you know that? Because we got there from Susie's house. We walked over there. We've got some pictures for
1: you, people. I know. I was there. So regardless of what got the police looking in the sewer drains, ultimately, as you said, they did discover the horrendous sight of little Susie's severed head in a catch basin just a few feet off the alley of the building where the murder basement room was. Between two buildings, I wonder if the murderer was like,
0: I need to find that murder basement room. It's around here somewhere. And then walked the a block. Oh, there it is. That's that
1: murder basement room I've been looking for. What the actual F? What the actual F is actually completely right. And how? what is the connection to that building? You carry a baby girl, uh, alive or
0: dead, at this point. Right. How? I'm...
1: Oh, so to your point, this was not random that the, the, we don't know why that building was selected. There's so many questions still unanswered. Um, there was no, well, we're going to get to that, but there was no trial. So we don't really know what happened. Um, So the catch basin was in between the two buildings that were literally 10 feet from the window of the murder room basement. They did not go far to dispose of her body. And the murder room is where little Susie, we don't know if she was killed there, but we know that she was dismembered there. Good God. Okay. So after the grisly discovery of Susie's severed head, police went out and started looking in sewer drains all over the neighborhood. They then found her torso, left leg, and right leg all in separate sewer drains. Now, the furthest dump site where her arms were found a month later was literally only three blocks or so off of what is now Hollywood and Broadway, kind of like right behind that It's a big gas station now. Sure. Right off of the uh, L. Uh,
0: Point of reference for anyone familiar with Chicago, this would be close to the northern end of Lakeshore Drive. Mm -hmm. So just off of Lakeshore Drive, um, you could almost walk there. Um, And we'll take you on a little bit of tour. We'll do some video and um, photos for you so you kind of have an idea of where that was occurring.
1: And I think that that's one of the things that struck us once we walked the path of the disposal of the body and the abduction was how close these sites all were. Literally, indeed, the catch basin and the first sewer drain were literally maybe 50 feet from each other, right. And then another 50 feet was the where the next one was. And like I said, the furthest one was only about three blocks away. So we have some very sketchy witness statements from that building, from that site. Uh, a couple in the who lived in the building across the alley, Marianne Klein and Jake DeRosa, reported that they were looking out the window. Why they were looking out the window at 3 a.m., we don't know. Uh, but across the alley, they did see a man who was trying to enter the basement. He seemed startled and quickly left. Now, that could have been he was he'd already been there and was seeing himself be noticed, Um, and then left and then came back. We don't know what the situation was. Frida Meyer lived right above the laundry room. It's a great name, Frida. And around 3.40 a.m. saw a man go in and out of the laundry room at least three times. So she must have been able to see. I don't know if she's saying that he, he must have just come out the back door of the laundry room and then up the little... Backstairs and then out into the alley. So she observed him staying for about 15 minutes each time, then going back out in the alley and coming back after about 10 or 15 minutes, which would totally make sense if the disposal was done kind of one or two pieces at a time. Right. So what you're saying, let me just see if I can get,
0: because I'm kind of a slow follower, alonger here. It's okay. I'll slow it down for you. Thank you, darling. So- Whomever this person is took her into the basement. The upstairs neighbor. So folks, f- follow us. You're you're the, you're an upstairs neighbor and you have a basement, laundry basement, et cetera, down, downstairs. Dude is going into the basement. You hear him down there, maybe notice him. And then he's leaving for 15 minutes and coming back. Mm -hmm. leaving again for 15 minutes. Uh Uh-huh. So you're absolutely right. And I'm I'm getting chills up my spine thinking about it since we were there. So he's walking with body parts and coming to retrieve more maybe? I think so.
1: Jen. Oh. Wow. Yay. So she, Frida, literally saw little Susie's body piece by piece, mm. being brought out and disposed. Good
0: Goodness gracious.
1: So let's talk about newspapers. At that time, there were five Chicago dailies. Okay, that's a lot of newspapers for mm-hmm. one city. They were devoted to the story that was literally on the front page of each newspaper for a full month because they found the body fairly quickly, sadly enough. They did not find the killer or who ended up being the convicted killer for six months, not until June was there an arrest. So the city, the papers were putting intense pressure on the, the police to find these, to find the killer of Susie Dagnan. Going back to the search, it did take the investigators the additional month to find her arms, Which were on, which were the, was that last site that was three blocks away. The Mm. search of what became known as the murder building, the murder room near the location where Susie's head was found, uncovered this basement laundry room that had four, what they, what I would call set tubs. They are those big, heavy iron kind of utility sinks, right? Yes. Yes. I'm very familiar with those. So blood, although they had been kind of cleaned out, there was an attempt to clean up the basement and clean up the sinks, there was blood found in each of the drains. So imagine they took the pipes off, the pipe, the kind of like drain traps underneath, and they found blood in each one of those sinks. That's horrible. And also as a
0: child, I grew up in Chicago in apartments all my life. So Mm -hmm. I'm very familiar with those. And uh, we only had one bathroom. There were seven of us. We lived on the first floor. so Oh, those, my Lord. <laughs> those drain tubs were used for more than...
1: Yeah. Just saying. We'll just let that trail off. So let's talk about... <laughs> and a, trail it did. Tra- <laughs> Getting back to our story, let's talk about Hector Verberg, the first man that was arrested. What is his name? Hector Verberg. Verberg. Yes, so yeah, he was the superintendent of the building in which the murder room was discovered. Access, of course, to the basement. He was questioned. He denied knowing anything about the murders. Let me read to you a little bit what about what happened to him. From Murderpedia, uh, police questioned hundreds of people and gave polygraph exams to about 170. And the science of polygraph was pretty new at that point, and it was a very exciting new forensic tool. And they had very few forensic tools back in those days. On several occasions, authorities claimed to have captured the killer, but were embarrassed when the cases proved baseless and the suspects were released. Then a janitor, 65-year-old Hector Verberg, was arrested on suspicion of murder on the basis that he worked in the apartment building. The sink in which the victim was dismembered and the grimy state of the ransom note suggested it had been written by a dirty hand, and janitors frequently have dirty hands. He did it. So confident were the police that they told the press, this is the man. Despite discrepancies between Verberg's profile and the one that had been developed by them as to what kind of skills the killer had, including him having potentially surgical knowledge or at least maybe being a butcher, which is pretty gross to think about. So the elderly man was repeatedly beaten under police questioning for 48 hours, suffering injuries, including a separated shoulder and other injuries. Oh my God. Despite this, he refused to confess. He didn't do, oh, sorry, I just talked on top of you. Yeah, you did. Don't ever do that again. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. Oh, no, he didn't do it. Verberg's janitor union lawyer got him released on a writ of habeas corpus. He was quoted of the experience. Oh, they hanged me up. They blindfolded me. I can't put up my arms. They are sore. They had handcuffs on me for hours and hours. They threw me in the cell and blindfolded me. They handcuffed my hands behind my back and pulled me up on bars until my toes touched the floor. I no eat. I go to the hospital. Oh, I am so sick. Anymore, and I would have confessed to anything. He spent 10 days in the hospital. It was determined that Verberg couldn't even write English well enough, even by the crude standards of the ransom note, for him to have written it. He sued the Chicago Police Department for $15,000, which in those days was huge. Good for him. Yeah, he, yes, good for Hector. He was awarded $20,000, which in today's dollars would be about $305,000. He was a victim of this crime as well. He was. And he was a victim of the public fervor that was fanned by the by the Chicago Daily newspapers to find the killer. Due to the precision and the cleanness of the cuts on Susie's body, there was speculation that the killer had to have some medical training or butchering training. Mm. A very strange note was subsequently sent to Mayor Edward Kelly saying, this is to tell you how sorry I am not to get old Degnan instead of his girl. Roosevelt and the OPA made their own laws. Why shouldn't I and a lot more, question mark? What? So here's the background on this. What was they talking about? Here it is. In 1947, in 1946, there was a nationwide meatpacker strike. The Federal Office of Price Administration, or OPA, was a target of the meatpackers union. Okay. And it just so happened that Jim Degnan was a senior OPA executive. No. And that's what, he had recently moved his family to Chicago because of being placed in this new position. Mm-hmm. So there was for a time speculation that a resentful meatpacker was maybe responsible for the killing and they targeted Jim Degnan's family. I cannot completely get on board with this theory just because of the the pathological nature of the crime. Sure. Sure. I I this you know send the guy a nasty note make threats beat him up but oh so do you think that perhaps somebody learned about this crime
0: obviously from the media and then decided to write this horrible letter or did the letter not exist
1: I think it probably happened, but I think it was probably a "let's use this to to try to intimidate the government officials." Yeah, that they were having this conflict with around the meatpacking industry and whatever it was that that was the right the issue. Sure. Probably another relative of mine. I wasn't gonna say that again, Katie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I said it for you.
1: What was your what was your your cousin <laughs> Eddie <laughs> doing during Slashed
0: across the headlines, girl.
1: Meat packer, cousin Eddie. Here's a question. What was the motive for this crime? It's very hard to suss that out from the facts of the case. So I, I have some ideas. Okay. Ransom is one possibility. But why was she killed so quickly? I mean, she literally was killed within hours of her abduction. There was no time for the Degnan family to put the ransom together. In that time, $20,000 that was in the ransom note would have been difficult, even for a middle to upper class person like Jim Degnan to put together. Not impossible, but it couldn't have been put together that quickly. The quick revelation of the location of the body parts made any possibility of ransom completely null and void. The person who made that call, if it was a call to the police saying, look for her head in the sewer, was the killer. Why would they do that if they were trying to collect that $20,000 ransom? It doesn't make any sense. The only thing that might've made sense with that is that the ransom was the original plan, but that something went wrong and she was killed. But then that doesn't explain a whole heck of a lot of other things. Theory number two, rage, violence, and torture. This would be motivated by a desire to torture and mutilate the child. And I found an example which of, in history of a guy who would have had that motivation. The guy's name was Albert Fish. Uh, he was a serious wackadoo. He was convicted of kidnapping, torturing, mutilating, and finally dismembering at least five children. Is he the same Albert Fish that ate of their flesh, their buttocks? You are so correct on that. I know about Albert. Most ghastly, he actually reported he cooked and ate their bodies. He enjoyed the infliction of pain on his child victims and on himself, apparently, at the time of his execution he, or a trial, he had stuck 29 needles into his own pelvic area and left them there. Totally gross. So the question is, was this for the purpose of inflicting pain and torture on little Susie? It's another possible motive. Sure. Horrible. Reasons for the dismemberment could have been different than the reasons for the crime. The dismemberment could have been a forensic countermeasure to throw off the investigators. Possible theory. Number three, sexual sadism, pedophilia. Research says that 70 to 80% of stranger child abductions are sexually motivated as gross as that is. Sexual assault possibly the most likely motive for the crime just based on stats the murder reports that i saw and i think that you're talking about have said nothing about a possible sexual motive i don't know how they would ascertain that based on the condition of her remains was there ever any uh,
0: suspicion or supposition that that was a sex a, a sex crime or that she was taken for such a lascivious I don't think so. I didn't read anything about that. Yeah. And, and I would think that the papers of the time would be very hesitant to mention anything like that, even if they did suspect it. I, I actually think they would
1: have too, talked yeah. about it. Yeah, because it would have been so just added to the sensationalism of the case. They talked about in in gory detail the crimes of Albert Fish and he actually... Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
0: Kind of puts to rest my idea. It just is so... Ooh, it's
1: too much. So what was it like for you to walk through the crime scene the way we did? Well, it was
0: really cold that day. It's oh. funny. It was a really cold day. It wasn't very long ago, but maybe a month ago. About a month ago. Yeah. Um, ominous. Um you know, probably like anybody else, I started to feel a little bit nervous when we were getting out of the car and bundling up more. Um, you know, the building itself is a more modern structure now that stands in the in the uh, place where Susie's apartment was. I was sad. Um, I'm a very empathic person. And not that I would say I could feel her or feel her family, but it's just thinking about what must have happened, I hoped what it was like for me was that I hoped that that she had been killed before she was removed from her home. Mm. I really hope that she didn't have to feel anything, not even the cold temperatures of the outside. Um, and then I just felt real sad for her sister, right? It was her only sibling. Um, not no. that that makes it any worse mm-hmm. or better. Um, and for the, the mother, um, you know, we'll link to the, in the show notes, we'll link to photographs and so forth from the papers at that time. But the, um, I just, I can get welled up just thinking about it. the expression of her mother's face in the media. You can just see the shock and it travels, you know, from this old edition of a newspaper that's been digitized. It, yeah. You can you can feel it. Mm-hmm. So I felt, um a sense of uh, just mourning. Yeah. Mourning. Yeah. Yeah. How about you?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, very cold. Yes, it was uh, very just chilling in a different way, of course. Um, Just even walking around and through the site where the Degnans lived in that beautiful home. And just, again, the sense of the idyllic place and the beautiful upscale neighborhood and the beautiful setting of a hundred feet from the shores of Lake Michigan in the shadow of the Edgewater Beach Resort Hotel. That was this was an upscale resort neighborhood. And that might sound strange to non-Chicagoans, but look up Edgewater Beach Resort Hotel. Um of course not during the winter, but during the summer it was a renowned beautiful fancy resort area um the the coldness the surgical precision the pathological nature of the of the crime and the dismemberment and the disposal of the body parts there's a lot of people that go to kidnap children of wealthy families sure most of them don't do that what was done to little susie no and that's what I got a real sense of walking around the home, walking around the neighborhood, the disposal sites. Oh, I yes. it was chilling. Yeah, it was chilling. And the part of it that was chilling was just the ordinariness too okay. of the buildings, the alley, the Chicagoness of that neighborhood. So we're going to wrap it up here talking for a moment about the man who served a life sentence for this crime. His name is William Hirons. He served over 60 years in the Illinois Department of Corrections and died, I think, just within the last few years. He was also convicted of two other murders that occurred in 1946 in the Lakeview neighborhood, Francis Brown and Josephine Ross. And we're going to tell you their stories in another episode where we talk about Lakeview. In our research about Hirons and the Degnan murder, as well as the others, we found that there was just tons of evidence that were casting so much doubt on whether he committed this crime. He was 18
0: uh, or so when he was arrested. He was a kid who had been in some kind of trouble, been in a reform school, Um, had done some things, but nothing Mm -hmm. as far as what Jen has told me, nothing violent, no violent acts. And he was railroaded by all uh, indicators of the time. And, you know, whether a person believes that Hirons was guilty or not, I don't think is the question. The question is if he would have been prosecuted or if there would have been even enough circumstantial evidence in this day and age to prosecute him, I would say based on what I've learned and what you've turned up and turned over, Jen, no. And so what that means is that if he didn't do it, who did somebody cut up a little girl and put pieces of her body all over the Edgewater neighborhood. Her sister Betty and her family had to live with all of that for a very long time. So if you're somebody who holds a good thought or who um, is somebody who wants to send good wishes her way, she's out there still, Betty Finn. And I hope that she has been able to get through this terrible tragedy and make... Um, make her life into something
1: beautiful. Oh, that's really nice. Yes. We really did. We wanted to make this about Susie and her family and her home and her life, as short, tragically as it was, and about the the survivor. Betty is a survivor of this horrible crime that just, it just like invaded this beautiful, idyllic family, this beautiful community, and... Yes, you're right. We we are really not thinking that Bill Hirons committed this crime. Somebody did. Somebody maybe that got away with this crime. Somebody that maybe committed other crimes similar to this, maybe in other cities. Yeah. The questions remain. The questions are very frustrating. But we've enjoyed telling you the story. Very much so.
0: And I'm no longer afraid of the catch basins and sewers in Chicago. And I have you to thank for that, Jen. Thank you. Thank you Mm -hmm. for bundling up with me and walking through the alleys and thinking about those crimes because I don't have to be afraid of our alleys anymore. I can walk them knowing that no one's coming to get me. I hope. My sweet Jen, you may be asking yourself at this moment, where would one find the Chicago Murderland podcast?
1: You know, I don't know how you knew that, Katie, (laughs) but I am asking myself that right now. Let me hear you ask yourself. I'm asking myself, self. Where in the world can we find Chicago Murderland Podcast? You've got questions and I got answers. You
0: can find us at our website, which is Chicago Murderland Pod.com. You can also find us on Facebook by searching Chicago Murderland Podcast, or if you want to, you can email us Chicago Murderland Pod at gmail.com. Then there's also that um, illustrious rate and review at Apple apple podcast i don't know if it's a yeah. fiji apple or a gala apple i don't do apple but you might do apple and so first off i think it's important that you go to apple and you rate and review us give us four stars please
1: oh, yeah maybe even 4.25 uh, seven
0: silver or gold stars uh gold always fudge yeah it's i want gold stars too. way more valuable I want fudgy stars, <laughs> fudgy uh, gold stars. Is there such a thing? Please no. do that. We need you. We need you to do that. And here's why. Murder Neighborhoodies, we love you. And when I say love, I mean love. And when I say you, I mean you and you and you and you and you and, you. and even you. That one who's over there going, she doesn't really. Yes. All is alias yes. we love alias yes. but most especially
1: my southwest side gen yeah whatever whatever south and back at you love you north side katie i love you more i doubt that but okay okay see you next time
2: win nothing to tell you she didn't come oh here comes the this fight to you
1: Mm-hmm.